Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of James. We are at James chapter 3. We're going to be looking at 3, 1 through 12. It's a well-known passage about the power of speech or the power of the tongue. And as is so often in the letter of James, this is also a warning. And it's couched as a warning to the original readers and to us, and thus it speaks really some very challenging words to us that we need to take to heart and we need to heed James's warning. Think in terms of a beware of dog sign or think in terms of a, you know, beware of flammable uh, materials sign or something like that. It's offering a warning. Well, James 3, 1 through 12 offers that kind of warning to us saying, beware of your tongue, beware of your words, beware of the power and the danger of the things you say. In fact, James speaks very starkly, almost like negatively, over the top negatively, about the impact of the tongue and how the tongue is full of wickedness, impossible to control, and brings all sorts of damage on our life and the lives of others. And so, really, this is very picturesque, dramatic language about the power of the tongue, and it serves up a very powerful warning, therefore, to us. Notice how James begins this section, however, in verse 1, which really sets the, I think, the broad context for it. James 3.1 says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. And so the the overall context of these words about speech in the tongue is addressed to teachers, that is, leaders, among God's people. This is very important to notice uh, because even though these words apply across the board to all of us, James is really giving this warning to those who either promote themselves as teachers who want to be put into a position of leadership and charge about the impact and thus the responsibility of having that role. And certainly teachers make their living in our cultural context. Certainly teachers carry out their role in all cultural contexts by their speech, by their mouth. That's how you teach. You say things. You speak things. And in fact, leadership in general is often a communicating sport, right? We leaders, including teachers, carry out their task upon the power of the things they say and how they communicate. And thus, James's address to teachers that then warns about the power of speech is very important. couple technical notes there in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. The word teacher is used 58 times in the New Testament, 48 of those in the Gospels primarily referring to Jesus. And thus, Outside of the Gospels, we only have about 10 uses of the word teacher, and yet we know it was a central role in the church. You see that, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul lists off some of the various leaders that God has given to the church, and one of those leaders is pastors, teachers, shepherd teachers, those who shepherd God's people and who teach God's people. Uh, we know that teachers... Uh, are, according to the Apostle Paul, 
They should be paid for their work, right? The worker is worthy of his wages, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so teaching was a leadership role in the church, a role that was worthy, Paul says, of double honor and was central to the leadership function of the church. And so it's not as if teaching is a bad role or an unimportant role, or James is really trying to dissuade people from being teachers. Teachers are necessary and important. So what is James's point? Well, as we read through the whole paragraph, um, we will hear James's point about the power of speech. What we see here in verse 1 is really the accountability and thus the responsibility of the role of teachers. He says, not many of you should become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. And thus, um, teaching has a great accountability and great responsibility um, that comes with it. And those who are going to enter into or assume this leadership and teaching role need to be aware of the accountability and responsibility, the weight, if you will, that comes with this role as being a teacher. And the reason for that is because teachers have the capacity to influence for good or for bad. In fact, in James's original cultural context, uh, Jesus's original cultural context, first century Palestine, first century Judaism, the way teaching operated was not just you taught information, you actually imparted yourself. Jesus says it himself in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says uh, the student will become like his teacher. And he's just assuming that because that's the way the teaching role worked in the cultural context of their day. And so to be a teacher meant you imparted not just your information, yourself, you influenced, you shaped, you molded a person, and thus you had there's a great weight and a great responsibility that comes with it. And even though the teaching role is somewhat different in our world, there still also is that weight and that responsibility of influence, of direction, of leadership. We see that even in politicians, church leaders, right, school leaders, that there is much words that are used in this role, and there is thus a weight of responsibility that comes with it. One other question here out of verse 1, when it says, we shall incur a stricter judgment, I think it's appropriate to ask, a stricter, stricter judgment by whom? That is, a stricter judgment by people, or a stricter judgment before God? And the context, there's nothing obvious in the context that makes it clear which way we should answer that. And maybe we don't need to decide. Maybe we should just say both. God's going to hold teachers accountable, uh, and we see that. He, there's regular teaching in all throughout scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, about false teachers, and they are regularly condemned. And God thus holds false teachers, poor teachers, teachers that lead people astray in air, right? He, he holds them deeply accountable to that, and they are condemned for that. And so we know certainly God will hold people accountable to a stricter judgment if they if they have a teaching role and lead people astray. It's also true, we know, uh, just with people, that because you're in a role of teacher, you now are held to, in some regards, a higher standard, even by people, because of your position of influence, because of um, the effect and the impact you have on people, you are held to a higher standard. And, and thus you see, for example, the Apostle Paul 
um, instructing Timothy, again in 1 Timothy, not to put someone in a position of leadership, not to appoint somebody to a teaching and leadership role um, carelessly and cavalierly, that there needs to be much thought and prayer that, and work that goes into that before you lay hands on them and put them into this role. And so I think uh, a stricter judgment really by both, by both. Um, that there is just an accountability and a responsibility that goes with the teaching and leadership role. Now, from there, James then goes into this discussion of the power of speech, the power of words, um, and he ties it directly to this leadership teaching role because, obviously, the nature of speech and words is central to that. So verse 2 begins with the word for, and he's explaining why you should be um, circumspect about assuming the role of leader and teacher. For we all stumble in many ways. The word for stumble is pataio here in Greek, and it's this idea of a mistake, a moral lapse. We all make mistakes. We all mess up. We all um, have moral failures, he says, in many ways, in many respects. So we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And so we all stumble in many ways. If somebody has the capacity to not stumble in their speech, he is a mature person. That's the idea of perfect. Perfect here, teleos in Greek, is complete, mature, whole. We've already seen this word used in the same way in James 1.4, where James says that endurance should have its total, complete result, so that a person may be perfect, mature, whole. And so we've arrived at being a complete human being if we're able to not stumble in what we say. We'll come back to that here at the end, but that's really important because of the nature of speech and where it flows from. And so if you're able to not stumble in what you say, it suggests that you are a mature, whole, complete person, able to bridle, able to control the whole body as well, that you have the kind of character now that can actually have control over your body in so many other ways as well. From there, then, what James does, playing off the imagery of bridal, leads him to a, a bit more imagery. And from here, then, in verses 3 and following, James uses four different word pictures, four different illustrations or analogies for the power and the impact of words and speech. Um, making different points from those illustrations. So notice what he says in verse 3. He says, now if we put the bit into the horse's mouth, there's the first bit of imagery, the bit and bridle for the horse. If we put the bit or the bridle into the horse's mouth, playing off the word bridle there in verse uh, 2, if we put the bit into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, right? We, 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 Put the bit into the horse's mouth. Now we can, can direct the horse. They obey us because of this tiny little bit of metal, this four or five inches of metal that we've stuck in the horse's mouth. And so we put the bit into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us. We direct their entire body as well. James's point playing off of verse 2, that a little tiny bit of metal has this capacity to control this massive horse. He makes the same point with another illustration in verse 4. Behold, the ships also, here's a similar one, though they are so great and are driven by such strong winds. So here you have this massive, large, great ship uh, driven by powerful winds, sailing ships in their day. So driven by powerful winds, strong winds, they're still directed by, notice, a very small rudder. 
wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. And so the pilot, meaning the captain of the ship, he can direct the ship, steer the ship with a small rudder, at least small in proportion to the overall size of the ship and the overall power of the winds. And so the bit and bridle, small piece of metal, directs this big horse. Uh, the ship, a small rudder, uh, directs this massive ship. Uh, so also, verse 5, here's the point, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Just to be clear, when he says that it boasts of great things, he's not saying the problem with the tongue is that it brags, and, it, you know, and it's arrogant, and it brags a lot. That's not the point. The point is simply that the, the tongue is small, but powerful, like a bit in a horse's mouth. It's a small little piece of metal, but it can co control this whole massive horse. Or the rudder is a small little piece of the ship, but it can direct the whole thing. It's small, and yet it has an impact all out of proportion to its size. So also the tongue. So the tongue is small, but it's mighty. The tongue is small, but it boasts of great thing. It, it, in other words, it has great power. It has great impact. It has great effect. And so the first point he makes by these first two illustrations is that the tongue is incredibly powerful, even though it's an incredibly small part of the body. And, and that power is for good or for bad. The tongue can be used very powerfully to affect very positive and good things, or the tongue can be used very powerfully to affect very negative or bad things. People have commented, for example, in history about great leaders and their oratory skill. For example, Hitler was known as a very powerful orator, a very powerful communicator, and yet his speech was used to very devastating effects in world history. And so the tongue has this power for good or for ill. That's where James goes next. And so notice coming out of the, the, the initial statement of the point, the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. Now James says, behold, another illustration, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And so now we're shifting from it just being small but powerful to being a small and powerful and potentially destructive. How great a fire or a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. A, a small little spark can set a, turn an entire forest ablaze. Uh, where I live, we have a lot of like natural grasses. And in the summer, it's not uncommon for there to be grass fires or even forest fires that are started, say, by uh, somebody off-roading in their Jeep and hitting a rock with their tailpipe, making a spark, and that spark ignites the grass. And before you know it, now there's this massive fire, right? That's James's point. Or a small little match can actually start a, a fire in a fireplace or a fire pit. A small fire can actually lead to a massive forest fire. Um, and so the tongue is small and powerful and potentially destructive. In fact, verse 6, he goes on and says, and the tongue is a fire. It is a fire. It is, um, it is, it is this blaze that has this powerful, destructive uh, uh, impact on our life and the lives of others. The tongue is a fire, 
the very world of iniquity. Iniquity just means unrighteousness or wickedness. So the tongue is a very world of iniquity. It's actually set among our members, he says in verse 6, as that which defiles the entire body. And so the tongue is a fire that's set among our members as the very thing that makes unclean our entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. So it sets on fire the course of our life, literally wheel of our existence, pretty much meaning like from from cradle to, to grave, one of the major things that does damage to our life, brings harm to our life, is our speech, the things we say. Think about it. You and I probably know that's true. Most of the things, some of the deepest things we regret are things we've said. And so the tongue is a fire. And it's a fire that sets on fire the very course of our existence. And so taking this imagery of a forest fire, the, the tongue, this small little thing, actually sets ablaze our life, oftentimes destructively. And then he says, and is set on fire by hell. Um, and that last phrase, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the, in the original language, is set on fire by hell, meaning are we talking about the, the source of the tongue's fire? hell itself, the world of evil, or is that the destination for the tongue because it's it's uh, so wicked and so evil that um, a tongue left uncontrolled uh, inflames a life that ultimately, if not repented of, will lead to hell. You know, it's not totally clear grammatically in the grand scheme of things. I don't think it really matters. I think, I think personally, James's primary point is that um, that the tongue is a hellish sort of thing, and, and when left to its own devices, it is destructive. And so I tend to think it's pointing more towards the source. Now, from there, James goes into uh, another series of illustrations from the, the world of wild beasts and talks about how difficult it is to control the tongue. So the tongue is small and powerful. The tongue is really like an out-of-control fire set on fire by hell itself. Uh, and really setting on fire our whole life. And now he's going to say, and the tongue is like almost impossible to actually control. So what in the world do we do about it? Listen to what he says in verse 7, the next series of illustrations. He says, For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. His point is to picture like a a circus or a carnival with animal tamers and lion tamers and tiger tamers and crocodile tamers, right? We, we're familiar with this sort of thing, and they were in their world as well. They actually had uh, arenas where they would have displays about animals and how they were used, and right? So you picture this idea of lion tamers and tiger tamers, right? That's the idea of the word tamed here. It's not to domesticate as in a pet dog or a cow. It is to tame a wild animal. And he's simply saying, we humans have had the capacity to actually tame wild animals so that we can display them in circuses and some of that for a long time. But, verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so James's point is, we can tame wild animals, but we can't tame this little tiny piece of flesh within our mouth, the tongue. We can't control our speech, is what 
he's really getting at here. He says it's a restless evil. The picture, say, is of uh, imagine a wild animal in a cage pacing back and forth, restless, ready to pounce. That's the picture of this restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. And so your speech is poisonous and toxic and harmful. And then James really draws out some of the implications of what he's getting at in verse 9. He says, with it, with our mouth, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, meaning we praise God. To bless was a very standard Jewish way to talk about God's uh, praising God. You see that, for example, even in the Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Psalm 103. That's the idea of praising God. So with it, we bless our Lord and Father. We praise God. And with it, with our tongue, we curse men who have been made in the very likeness of God. And so we praise God and we curse men who are made in his very image. From the same mouth, James says, come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, this ought not to be this way. And James is incredulous. He's like, think about it. Like, you're praising and blessing God and cursing the very people who are made in his image. This makes no sense. This is irrational. This is inconceivable. And yet it's what we humans do. And so he says, another illustration, verse 11, Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh water and bitter water? Like, are you going to get drinkable water and non-drinkable water from the very same spring? Of course not. If the spring is a good spring, it's going to send forth good water. If it's a bad spring, it's going to send forth bad water. You're not going to get both out of the same spring. And yet both come out of our mouth. Or again, James says in verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives and a vine produce figs? In other words, if it's a fig tree, what's it going to produce? It's going to produce figs, not olives. And if it's a vine, meaning a grapevine, is a grapevine going to produce Figs will know a grapevine is going to produce grapes. The nature of the tree will produce the kind of fruit it is. And so he ends with, well, neither can salt water produce fresh. You're either going to have salt water, bitter water, bad water, or you're going to have fresh water. You're not going to have both coming out of the same mouth. And James's point is that the two kinds of words coming out of the mouth represents a nature problem, a character problem, and that's what needs to be addressed. The fig tree has the character of a fig tree and thus produces figs. The vine has the character of a grapevine and produces grapes and not figs. A freshwater spring has the character of freshwater and thus uh, produces fresh water, right? This is a a character issue, a nature issue. And so the two fruits shows the problem of character. And this brings us back to James's whole point when he says that if someone is able to control what they say, they are a perfect person, a mature, complete person. Their character has become whole, mature, and Christ-like, and thus they produce good speech from the character within them, and this very much reflects the teaching of Jesus. This is the way Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 12, picking up in verse 33, Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, 
for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? You're a bad tree, you're going to produce bad fruit. Um, and so how can you speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Did you hear that? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, out of what kind of person you are, what kind of character you are. He says in verse 35, the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And so I say to you, Jesus says, that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Very strong words from Jesus, but the reason should be clear for that is that your words reveal your character. They flow from, and thus they reveal the kind of person you are. Are you a good person or an evil person? And so your words are an overflow of your heart. They're an overflow of your character. And that's why James's point in uh, James chapter 3 is not so much control your tongue, which is often the way we teach it, or often what we teach our kids, control your tongue, watch what you say. That may be an initial stopgap measure, but that's not the ultimate goal. The goal is not to control your tongue. The, the goal is to have your character changed by Christ so that you become a good tree, and thus you will naturally produce good fruit in what you do and in what you say. Make the tree good, and its fruit will be good. And so the ultimate goal for us is to become good trees who speak good things because we have good character stored up within us. And thus, it's not so much to control our speech as it is to become a good person. So as you reflect on James chapter 3, 1 through 12, I think the appropriate question for you and for I to ask is, what does your speech say about the kind of person you are?